This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's going on, Tribe? Welcome to the show. I am excited about today's guest. He was introduced to me through a GoBundance member. His name is Scott Savlov. He is a legendary figure in the worlds of TV and sports entertainment, having worked as a producer and director of sports programming and television. His catalog includes more than 15 shows, hundreds of hours worth of TV, including, amongst other things, the Ryder Cup, VH1's Fairway to Heaven, the Omega Master Celebrity Pro-Am, because of his long career in entertainment, Scott has developed deep friendships with people all over the industry. If you watch his podcast, you'll see exactly the level of friendship. It's really, really cool. Throughout his career, Scott heard from friends and family that his conversations were funny, informative, and insightful. And in 2021, he decided to act on that feedback and develop an amazing podcast featuring those conversations. And the Path Here podcast was born. Guests like Cedric the Entertainer, Rob Riggle, and so many others. Scott, welcome, man. It's great to have you. Well, Jamie, thank you. And that's, uh, it's awfully kind. I, I, I don't know how much money I owe you for that kind of pleasant <laughs> introduction like that. Well, it's all true. And it's been really fun learning more about you. We had a phone conversation after we were introduced and it was just fascinating to hear the world that you're in. It always amazes me how many, I don't know, niches and niches, whatever the word is that are, that, that are out there. And you are in one that I guess I just you know, exists, but I don't know anybody in it. And it's, and it's interesting to me. And I want to go back on that. Like, you know, kind of going back to your childhood, golf is a through line. We'll talk about it. We were just kind of, you know, talking about some interesting stuff relative to golf a moment ago, but was golf always a passion play? Was this sort of the, the first thing that you latched onto in order for you to become uh sort of a sports programming television person or how did golf become your thing? Uh, ironically, I played golf, but where I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey, in mm-hmm. central New Jersey, right outside of Princeton. The town I was in had a, a really good municipal course. I was like one of those kids, didn't grow up on a country club, grew up on a municipal course, public course. They didn't allow kids on the course until you're 12 years old. Hmm. And uh, I always wanted to go play with my parents, who both played golf. Um, my mom was more fun than my dad on the golf course because my mom was just silly. My dad kind of wanted to, you know, he's more quiet, wanted to take it more seriously. So I gravitated to playing with my mom because it was really fun and silly. My friends really liked hanging out, hanging out with her because her jokes were pretty good um, for, for little kids. Um, so I actually played golf, but it was really one of those activities that, uh, when you didn't have little league baseball in the summer, my mom could drop me off early in the morning at, at the golf course. I'd pay $3 at that time and you play it until you're tired. And then I go to like play baseball that night. That was my day as a kid in the summer growing up in New Jersey, which was pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, so golf was just really something that I liked playing. I could hang out with my friends and walk and talk and just, you know, we didn't know what we we're doing. We didn't take lessons. So we just played. Um, 
baseball was my passion. Basketball was my first vocation. I started in radio when I was 16. Um, I got a radio gig because the guy, my one of my baseball all-star coaches was a radio reporter covering the New Jersey Nets. No kidding. And he was trying to impress a girl and he had a chance with this girl and said, Hey, you seem to know a lot about this, you know, basketball. Could you go in, take this tape recorder and after the game, go interview these guys? Well, I did. And I got paid $15 an interview. Back then it was a lot of money to just go to a basketball game, interview people, get a quote, and then drop it off at a radio station. Mm -hmm. My baseball coach quit, didn't want to do it. The radio station hired me to do it. And I covered the NBA at 16. No kidding. Back didn't then, have a driver's yeah. license. Yeah. What were some players? Get to the games. My sister or my mom or dad would drive me to the game and that would be my second press pass. Now, I never told anybody. They're like, oh, isn't that nice? He's got his sister with him. <laughs> She had to drive me. Everyone didn't, you know, they're like, you're tall, you're 6'2", you know. They didn't know that, uh, that that's part of the, you know, reason I was able to get to the, the games is because I had somebody driving me. Amazing. Is this back, uh, am I thinking Derek Coleman era before that? Before that. I literally started covering the NBA during the the tail end of the Dr. J era, hmm. um, right at the at the very, you know, it was the Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, um, uh, Magic Johnson gotcha. era. Gotcha. That was my era where they're older than me by five to seven years. <laughs> but I was interviewing them. So I interviewed Magic his rookie year and Bird and the whole thing. Were you the coolest kid in school? No, I was a nerd. I was the nerdy jock, the guy that was in all the advanced classes and hung out with all the nerds that are now all PhDs and retired because they they made all the money. Sure, sure. And all the high school jocks peaked in high school. Yeah. Um, but I, I played sports, but I was that guy that, you know, was in all the AP classes and, uh, and everybody went to Ivy League schools and I didn't. Only summer school. What a start. Like if this was the days of Instagram, you would have been absolutely huge. Pictures next to Monster. all these guys. <laughs> Monster. I went to Studio 54. Wow. As a 16-year-old. As a For what? Because I was invited by a guy on the Knicks, the New York Come Knicks. On. And we got friendly and, and took me into Studio 54. Got to okay, meet Warhol. Wow. So yeah. let's dissect this a bit. I want to, I was going to, we're going to go into some of the other stuff that you do because persistence is something I've noticed uh, in your, as a through line in your career. Like your first right. Wide World of Sports show was very early. You were, you know, quote unquote, lucky to be such, such a young guy getting a show produced, but there was a level of persistence. But let's talk about relationship building for a moment. We can right. flash forward and back here. The path here, you've got insane guests. I remember talking to you like, how do you get these people? You're like, they're all my friends. I mean, unbelievable friends. And right. one of them that's not even on there that I've learned as a friend is Kurt Russell, a very close friend of yours, right? So right. you've you've built amazing relationships now 
but it sounds like it was rooted back then. Is this a natural skill for you? Is it something you recognized early on would give, uh, would have a level of equity for you in the future? How do you, how do you tell me about your, your, uh, your path here in terms of building relationships, if you will? Well, I, I appreciate that. The, the path here podcast is, is driven off of relationships and I'm a relationship driven person, 100%. I don't think I ever realized that until, you know, later in life, when I started, I'm that guy that always would be observant one where other people wouldn't notice if they're, you know, like in a bank and -and so-and-so is there, or you're on the, on an airplane and -and so-and-so is sitting near you. Other people just are oblivious. They're in their own world. I'm the guy that's always kind of looking around because I'm a people watcher and I've always been that way. But I, you know, I mean, I, my, my life in that time period was, has always been fun. I work hard, but it's fun. And my kids today tease me that I'm the oldest kid they know. Because I've always tried to create things that to me are fun that I could be passionate about. And so I think the relationship behavior, both my parents, that's how they existed. They were relationship people. My sister's a relationship person. She's my sister is older than me. She's infinitely smarter than me. Um, infinitely greater in people skills as far as being politically correct, because I'm politically incorrect. She's politically correct. Sure. I mean, my my sister is that person that you want to have as your older sister. Period. She's great. Um, so I had great role models. I'm that person also who never had a doubt whether or not my parents or my sister really loved them. Hmm. So. I'm always secure in who I am. And I think that's also part of why my chip on the shoulder is that I I didn't have anybody to help me get a job or help me uh, get into broadcasting or help me in sports. I mean, I, I kind of did. My dad was a really good baseball player slash athlete slash. I mean, he was Joe Torrey's coach when Joe Torrey was 14 and 15 years old as a catcher <laughs> and, it, and at, in the parade ground league in, in Brooklyn. So my dad knew baseball. So I had an advantage, you know, an advantage of, of having someone who, who could say, you know, as, as a pitcher, you're not doing that right. You got to mm-hmm. do this, this, you know, so I had someone to talk to, but it wasn't as if he could pull out and say, Hey, I want you to do this. So I was, uh, you know, everything I did, I earned. That's my chip on my shoulder, but I always knew my fallback is I've got people that are behind me telling me, go get it because they love me and supported everything I did. I love that. I, I believe wholeheartedly we we might be going into a recession. We might be going into some sort of correction. And I think a lot of people are going into protection mode, which I get, right? I mean, whatever. Right. Depending on the person you listen to, like hoard your cash, have water and, you know, uh, uh a tuna in the basement ready to go in case you know the the apocalypse come and the zombies and all that stuff but i think the 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 part that i feel very secure in i love the family aspect that you have this backing of family 
but you also have such amazing relational equity, right? You've got a lot of people that are there for you because right. you built and cultivated a lifetime of relationships. You had a unique access point. 16 years old, I don't know of anybody other than you in the world that's interviewing NBA players. Not now, not ever. Maybe maybe there's a YouTuber out there I don't know about right now, right? But it's not a normal thing for you to have that kind of access. But for you to not only have that kind of access, but to cultivate a relationship at 16 to be invited by a Knicks player with Andy Warhol there at Studio 54 means right. that you've got a really amazing way of, of making people feel very at ease with you, I think. Making right. people feel as though you're not there to take, you're there to maybe give or just be. So- Look, some people might say, well, yeah, if I had, you know, uh, uh, if I had inroads to NBA players, that would be really cool. But you could throw that away very easily by being on the constant take or whatever it might be. What are some of the things that you do when you had that point? Like it could be for somebody else, something as simple as um, I got invited to a party and these three really interesting people were there. How does somebody walk into that room like you did into an NBA locker room right. and not only not only be credible, I, I care less about that, I guess. But how do you form relationships that can be lasting? Because that seems to be the through line of your life. You formed lasting relationships with, I don't want to say significant people. That sounds a little bit, I don't know, but uh, accomplished people that that, right. that are probably pretty guarded with who they let in. But you've been let in. How? I think that you identified one element, and that is to put people at ease. I've never really asked people for things. Um, I love doing people favors. And know that in the back, I always have in my back pocket that tip I can always pull out. Unless it's for my kids, really, I don't use those tips and I still don't. Mm. Um, but early on um, with the NBA players, I was asking questions that the, you know, these legendary New York Times at that time covering the Knicks yeah. or Nets. If, if, you know, today's world, everything is politicized. Right? <laughs> so if you say you're the Daily News or, you know, and the New York Times is one thing, if you're the New York Post is another political party. And, and I'm just looking at the New York market. Yeah, sure. When I was doing sports, it was the New York Times was the quintessential kingpin. If you were the New York Times uh, you know, Bill Roden covering the NBA, uh, you know, Ira Burkow. And I mean, um, there were guys, Green, Sam Greenspun. Um, there were guys in that window of time that were just, you know, iconic. Dave Anderson, uh, real columnists, real writers that were Pulitzer Prize, you know, Roy S. Johnson. If people don't know who that is, I mean, Roy was this amazing basketball writer for the New York Times and then, you know, Atlanta's Constitution and then Sports Illustrated editor and blah, blah, blah. That's who my peers were. Hmm. So I would ask questions of these players and they weren't that, I mean, I knew what I was talking about. Sure. So um, I did a lot of homework. When I would get to the game, I'd read all the statistics. I would ask the people like the scouts in particular, um, what are they looking for? How are they doing these things? And they would give me the angle of what they, why they're at the game, why they're looking at, at this at, at that time. Now, again, the, in the NBA, the other luxury I had, the press table was on the court. Mm -hmm. 
I was in that era just as it turned where it became, you don't know where the media sits today. When you watch an NBA game, only the people in the front row are the people that paid buku bucks to get there for those seats. Yeah. When I was covering the NBA, the first row was the media. That was a press table that you, so you would hear the conversations with the players. You would know if somebody's talking trash, if they're getting into it and they're going to have a fight. You can hear the dialogue as members of the media. So I was able to use some form of perception and understand what questions to ask. And I was, you know, I was having a good time. You know, ultimately, guys would ask me how old I was, and I'd tell them, and they were amused by the fact that here's this little kid, basically, to them. But again, these guys were only, you know, some of my guys that I became friends with, they were rookies, so they're 21 years old. Well, think about it now. 21 is like a baby. So there's really not that huge of a difference between 16 or 17 or 18 years old and a 21 or 22-year-old. They're all kids. Yeah. So they were the guys that were inviting me. They were 21 say, hey, come in New York and let's go into the, you know, the velvet rope and go to the Studio 54, go to Limelight, go to these other CBGBs and go see the talking heads. I mean, I had opportunities. So I, I took that and I had to compartmentalize it because my friends at school did not believe me. Now, then that put it where I had to take them individually because I only was given one press pass to go with me. Sure. So when I would take somebody I grew up with with me, they would they would be very quiet to me for a long time because they would be like, he's really not full of crap. No. <laughs> like he's been saying, oh, yeah, he's not. He's so tired that he, you know, he showed up for class. He's falling asleep because at 3 a.m. he rolled in after going at Daryl Dawkins club <laughs> in Philadelphia called Lovetron. <laughs> and I was like the only white dude in the place. And they were amused by some young kid who's, oh, look at the cute white kid. Yeah. But I, I got along with everybody. Yeah. So to your point, I just loved my surroundings. I loved it. And as I got to college, it just expanded. It just became a bigger playing field for me. And But I wanted to be in broadcasting. So yeah. I was doing broadcasting again all through college. Amazing. Have you ever violated that, um, that, uh, I don't know, that way of being? I mean, it's real easy to get, you know, cocky when you're around that sort of, like you said, you bring your friends. Have you ever, have you ever had a relationship that went sour because maybe you, you didn't abide by sort of your natural inclination? Maybe you were a little bit too, I don't know, on the take or asking too much, or you saw it as a relationship that could benefit you. Have you ever had that? That that no. pop up at any point in your life? You've stayed true no. to true to your your process, if you will. I, I'm still friends with many of those people Amazing. that I was friendly with when I was 16. Yeah. They're still in my life today. I mean, one of the guys uh, who was my first podcast on the path here, the first episode was the center of the Knicks and the Chicago Bulls in their heyday. Bill Cartwright. Bill Cartwright. Yeah. Billy and I talk every single day. He's like my older brother. <laughs> but it's from, and our story of how we met, the tape recorder that I mentioned was the oldest raggedy tape recorder that they had at the radio station, WPST in Trenton, New Jersey. It was the oldest one. And the strap was barely hanging on by a, by a thread. And then literally, 
Cartwright was a big star coming out of San Francisco. Yeah. The same year as Magic and Bird. They were all big stars. He was the star of New York. He was the, the quote unquote savior because for the previous five, six years, they were terrible. Mm-hmm. And here comes this guy who can score and he's a big, big presence, big personality. Yeah. My, my tape recorder strap broke, almost fell on his foot. <laughs> and he barked at me like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, you know, I must, because I was a 16-year-old kid from New Jersey. <laughs> I'm like, do you think I did it on purpose? Do you think <laughs> I dropped that to be on your foot? Like, I'm giving it right back to him. Yeah. And he was laughing at me, and we introduced each other. I interviewed him. The next time he came back in, it was, hey, let's see this guy's uh, tape recorder. You know, make sure it doesn't fall on anybody's feet. Right. I'm flipping it back to him. And by that time, all of a sudden, he's like, this is before cell phones. Here's my phone number. Call me. And his wife, Sherry, he's still with the same gal uh, to this day. Um, you know, he would say, Sherry's going back to Sacramento with our son. He had his first son. And we would hang out. Yeah. And so that relationship hasn't changed. In fact, People know that when they're around us, we give each other a hard time because that's what we do to this day. But it's all relationship driven. And Billy introduced me a lot of the other NBA players. And because of my relationship with him or some of the other guys at that time period, uh, there was a great enforcer from the was with the Portland Trailblazers in their heyday, Maurice Lucas, who passed away some years ago from stomach cancer. If you know who Luke Walton, the the coach, Luke Walton was named because Bill Walton, his dad, named him after Luke for Maurice Lucas, Luke Walton. Wow. Maurice Lucas, again, another guy who's a big troublemaker, big, strong guy. But he took me under his wing. He was amused by me. And until his passing, I would always go to his golf tournament and play. I would help him how to raise money, how to do things because he was my friend. Mm. And uh, again, big, tough, strong, you know, guy, 6'8", 240, all, you know, like made of steel. Yeah. Big pussycat. Yeah. Big teddy bear. To me, he, you know, these guys treated me like a little brother and took me under their wing. And I was lucky in that context. I love this relationship topic, man. It means so much to me. It's one of those things that, you know, uh, I think naturally for me, I had an inclination. I like how you said it, observant. You know, I kind of, you know, I, I see what's what with people. I, I I just like stories. I'm I'm curious and I love hearing people's stories. That's why I love podcasting. I love this this medium. I had a, a desire to be a sportscaster when I was a kid. At least I wanted the result of being a sportscaster. Like I wanted to be in the booth with Bob Costas like at 19. I mean, I, you did it. God, I could have, I could have followed your path, but I didn't want to go to like W O I I and in Des Moines and do the two to 6 AM, uh, you know, classical music shift. Like I just didn't have enough of a drive toward that, uh, that, uh, uh, career path, I guess, to do the work. But I love podcasting because it feeds that, that I like what I see explaining, asking, you know, being curious and all of that stuff. And I love the the idea for other people who might wonder about, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really good at being friends with people. What value is that? Man, I mean, you've made a career out of it. So you're the example of the yeah, value. Yeah, but I, I, I got to tell you, I grinded. So yeah. when I was in college, I interned for the CBS affiliate in Phoenix. I was at Arizona State. Um, 
I was there at the very, like the second or I think the second year when it turned into the Walter Cronkite School. Hmm. The number one broadcasting journalism school in the country is, is Arizona State today. Hmm. Back then, it was a good broadcasting school. I picked that school. I was doing the radio work. I wanted to do TV. A guy that I met who is covering the game was a TV, you know, sportscaster, Marv Albert. Oh, yeah. This is in his heyday. Marv said, why don't you come in? A, a friend of mine is, is going to uh, be speaking. I'll set it up for you to go speak or go listen to him speak. It was Al Michaels. Hmm. So I met Al Michaels and he said, why don't you go to my alma mater, Arizona uh-huh. State? That's how I picked Arizona State for broadcasting because Al Michaels inspired me. You fast forward it to two or a year and a half or two years ago when Al was being inducted into the into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I was on the phone to congratulate him and he talked to me and told me what his speech was going to be. And he told me his ASU speech, his freshman orientation speech was part of it because he was online to register for classes as a freshman. And he told me this speech when I was 17. Mm-hmm. So I knew this speech, but again, fast forward, he's telling this speech at his baseball, uh, you know, he's getting inducted into the baseball hall of fame. Yeah. But he told me this speech. He said, I'm standing in line and, you know, I was so excited to be there from where I was from. And the Kid in front of me, where all of a sudden we just struck up a conversation. He said he's going to play baseball at ASU. And Al said, Well, I'm going to be your broadcaster. I'm so excited. This is going to be great. And then Al said, Fast forward a few years and, and the Cincinnati, because he was the voice of the Cincinnati Reds. Mm. And they were, and they were playing the Oakland A's. And he went on the field. And that kid was the third baseman for the Oakland A's, Sal Bando. Wow. Was the oh, kid yeah. that stood in front of Al Michaels at orientation? That's funny. And they 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 connected again. Here here's Al doing the national game for the World Series, and and he told that, and he said that's what Arizona State meant to me. Boom! I told my parents. They're like, "Where are you going to go to school? You know, you're, if you're going to work hard to get into Princeton, which was right near us, get your grades up, make sure of this, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "I want to go to Arizona State." It's sunny all the time in you know, great broadcasting journalism school. Sure. And they're like done. And that's, that's how I picked it. Wow. It's Al Michaels. Well, it's funny. And I will oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go, no, no, no. I was going to say, so I've played golf with Al, you know, in the last, you know, last several years. And I always thank him. It's not only for the golf, but for, I think, helping shape me into mm-hmm. what I became because of his story. So to your point about storytelling, that's where my path here, the the embryo of it is my older daughter, Lindsay, has been around me as my younger daughter has as well. Marty, they have heard all these stories, either from my friends talking to them or when they're in the car listening to dad talking on speakerphone mm. and people are telling these stories about me. And me giving people a hard time back. So that's where Lindsay's like, Dad, do this podcast. No one's going anywhere because of COVID. Right. Your stories are like, you know, people can hear them and relate to them because you're going to hit a nerve with somebody 
whether it's music or whether, you know, and, you know, the, the other, you know, side of that is to your point, persistence. Mm. When, when I got out of ASU, yeah, it wasn't like a job was handed to me. I went back home to New Jersey and every day I had to, using an old typewriter, write an introductory note and send it to every television station you could think of to try to get a job as their sportscaster. Mm-hmm. The, the groups that bought into me that said, we'd like to hire you, Ada, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. To this day, I don't know where Ada, Oklahoma is. <laughs> they wanted me. There was a station in San Luis Obispo. Now, that's a really pretty place. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Ada, Oklahoma isn't a pretty place, yeah. but I went out to San Luis Obispo. And they're like, well, you have to do weather more than sports, but you got to do them both. And I'm like, weather's kind of fun. And then I got this gig offered to me in Florida to be in a sports anchor. Wow. In Orlando. And I'm like, that's where I'm going. Yeah. So, but it was like a hundred percent of me sending out letters, a resume that looked like every other kid's resume, except I had radio experience and some TV experience. But it's just a matter of luckily they hired me. That TV station never made it on air for the first year and a half when I was in Florida. Wow. I applied for a job at the CBS affiliate in West Palm Beach. And sure enough, the uh, the station, uh, the day I applied, they fired a guy. Hmm. They said, come on down. I was there that day. I like was like, it was as if I was waiting in my car for this. And just zipped down there and got the job. And I was doing sports like a week later. It was like editing, sports, weather. I loved it. And then back in Orlando, I had a radio. And I would commute down at this one station in West Palm and go to this Orlando radio station. And I had a talk show. And uh, again, you know, I mean, for me, it was a... A, a great run of at ASU. I made for whatever reason, I knew a lot of the athletes, you know, I mean, I being one myself, but I never made any enemies hmm. and ever, you know, and I get to go work out, you know, and play basketball with the basketball team. Yeah. Um, the football yeah. guys were friends of mine. Right. Yeah. So my first job when I was doing West Palm, the Cleveland Browns were in the playoffs. Marty Schottenheimer was their coach. Mm-hmm. And they would go down to Vero Beach during the playoffs to do their practice, not in Cleveland. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. And I had to go cover them. And no one was getting any interviews with Bernie Kosar, who was their quarterback, and, and their stars. And they were really good. If you remember, mm-hmm. they, they played the Broncos in the championship game. They lost. Lost, and, yeah. But... In that window, I was getting interviews that other people weren't getting. Hmm. And the reason is Mike Pagel, who went to ASU with me, was their backup quarterback. Hmm. And he was a friend. There's that relational equity. Right. (laughs) Bernie Kosar, hey, help my buddy out. He went to ASU with me and he's friends with all these guys. And Kosar sat down with me and I got an exclusive with Kosar that no one else had. It's all relationship driven. 
It is really. And I wonder a little bit. So you you later, so you you pivot to production, or at least I think right. at least you pivoted to production. And early on, oh man, I, I thought I wrote the show down. Was it world's fastest athlete or something yeah. along those lines that yes. you that you created and uh were able to get in to the ABC Wild Worlds of Wide World of Sports uh franchise? I don't know if that's the right phrasing of it or or, or what will it was the division, it was a programming look wide world of sports created by Rune Arledge. Yeah. Who created ABC Sports? Mm-hmm. Period. So Rune Orledge was there. I created the world's fastest athlete when I was 22. Had an idea for doing the show. And I, and because when I was a kid, there was a show on called The Superstars. Yeah. I love watching that show. I took it seriously, even though that the, it wasn't serious. But I, when you're a kid and you're watching, your eyes are as big as plates. They're in like Hawaii or wherever they were. It looked warm and great. And it made sense to me. And it looked fun. And it had all these athletes competing in events that were not their sports. Mm. So in the back of my mind, that was always cool. That's interesting. Yeah. And uh, so I said, you know, I knew these guys from like, again, ASU. I knew Ron Brown, this wide receiver played for the Rams, but at ASU, he was a, he was a de facto defensive back because he really didn't have the greatest hands, Mm. but he was on the 84 four by 100 with Carl Lewis sprint team. He had world-class speed. Can't teach speed as they say. Cannot teach speed. So (laughs) I knew Ron were friendly, great guy. I mean, just watching him running on a track, I would run and it would be like he had two extra gears that I didn't have. Mm. And it was amazing. And I just, oh, I always thought about what would happen if you put Ron Brown against Ricky Henderson against Carl Lewis? Yeah. What would happen? And that's what I did. And that's how I created the world's fastest athlete. I wrote it all down on a napkin sitting at a bar. And that was the embryo of the world's fastest athlete. Started pitching the show, um, how to convince these guys to do the show. And luckily, again, I knew enough athletes that somebody knew somebody that would then get Ricky on the phone. Ricky would get his agent on the phone. And I created this this show. It was tough to get it on TV because I was a nobody in that space. It got to ABC. Yeah. And the guy who ultimately signed my contract was uh, the head of sports at that time, Bob Iger. Okay. Robert Iger was the head of Disney for right long yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. But he signed my my first contract when I created World's Fastest Athlete. At that time, you know, their sports category for anything that was creative that wasn't live programming would go into the bracket called wide world of sports Hmm. and that was when the legendary announcers i mean you're talking about chris shankle and and all these guys with these majestic voices that were calling the action and jim mckay the legendary announcer did the olympics was the voice of abc's wide world of sports Hmm. and uh he did the introduction for our segment, you know, of why we're, you know, this is a great new idea. And I remember this like it was yesterday, Jim McKay. Here's the guy who's calling the Olympics. He's actually like throwing my show yeah. on ABC. That was pretty cool. 
That is very cool. And so, and I was a kid. So I use that as the, of how to be persistent. I probably heard no Hmm. 50 times. It's like writing a book. You talk to any of these authors, great, you know, any great author was turned down 80 times. It was turned down 90 times before my first book was published. It was turned down at least 50 times on World's Fastest Athlete. And I was determined, I knew that this was going to be a great show. Today, you could not do that show. Because, first of all, the guaranteed contracts, right? To guarantee a contract with Ricky Henderson, this contract was $5 million contract. This right. is the extent of the whole contract. <laughs> Today, a guy is making $35 million for one guy per year. Yeah, This contract could be $300 million to insure mm-hmm. it's. You can't insure a contract like that. Right, right, right. Certainly not going to put him out on a, on a field and, uh, you know, make right. him make him uh, perform in, in, you know, maybe something he's not used to throw a knee, blow out a knee, throw out an ankle. Right. He whatever tears an Achilles rounding. Look, the competition was if everybody had to run the bases, yeah. starting at home plate, you run the bases. And then you're doing a 40 yard dash on a football field out of a three point stance. Mm-hmm. And then a hundred meter sprint. The guy with the lowest cumulative time was the world's fastest athlete. You had, Daryl Green, at that time, arguably the fastest guy in football, against Carl Lewis, arguably the fastest guy on the planet, against, say, Ricky Henderson, Mm -hmm. arguably the fastest guy in baseball. Yeah, most stolen bases. Who's going to be the fastest? Well, Daryl Green won. Did he? I was going to say, I have Ricky Henderson in my brain because he knows how to run the bases. You know, that's probably the biggest... Right. Arts and that was the hardest thing for those guys because like Carl Lewis wound up running down first base and he wound up in right field <laughs> because I he didn't know that. how to turn and cut. <laughs> it's not knocking Carl. I mean, going a straight line sure. at that time, Carl Lewis could probably beat any anything other than a cheetah. Right, right. Or some cards, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. that dude was just flat fast, yeah. flat, flat out fast. And so, but that or was Michael more, Johnson. A beefed up Michael Johnson, but Michael Johnson. Yeah, but Michael Johnson couldn't beat him in a hundred. <laughs> true, true. He could beat him point. in a two hundred, but point. not a hundred. Yeah. I mean, Carl Lewis was, you know, the guy. So, but he was in that competition, so he was pretty cool. Yeah. The fun story I tell when I did that, uh, Herschel Walker bailed on me in the eleventh hour. Okay, so I've never forgiven Herschel Walker for that, mind you. Because, you know, I'm a kid, it's my show. And he, you know, going into this thing, he cancels. What do you do? You need a person. Well, luckily, the Pro Bowl, the NFL Pro Bowl was in Hawaii. And that's where we taped this. And at my hotel, I look out from my room and I see a guy sitting under a palm tree, just sitting there. It's Eric Dickerson. Mm. Go downstairs, go out to the, go out to them. I introduce myself. I ask him, I don't know what his reputation was. I know he's super fast. Sure, sure. Do you want to do this? When is it? Uh, Monday morning. Yeah, all right. I'll do it. <laughs> How much do I get paid? $5,000. All right. I'm in. Yeah. So ABC, I get on the phone with ABC. Who'd you get? Who'd you get? Eric Dickerson. Really? <laughs> Eric Dickerson. Man, you're good. They're yeah, like, no. man, you're good. I was lucky. 
Yeah, but and I was observant. Look, right. I'm looking out the window. I see somebody, and you know, I had a good story to tell, and, and it worked. And he's, I'm still friendly with Eric to this day. And I was going to ask guy. if you still know him. Yeah, and the guy that showed up first of all the celebrity athletes, the first for the first competition on time, Eric Dickerson. Eric Dickerson, he's geeked up, ready to go. <laughs> um, Real quick, I'm curious, this may be just a yes or no, because I want to talk a little bit about your persistence. I have a, a question on that. Uh, but uh, going back to relational, I just, for some reason, I associate Al Michaels, ABC. Did he have any role in this at all for you? No. Any, any connection value? Okay. No. On um, on persistence, turned down 50 times. Authors are turned down 80 times. Um, I love those stories, especially when you hear you know, that the 81st time or the 51st time paid off. But when do you when do you need to give up, or how do you know when it's time to give up? How are you? What's the difference between the guy with the great idea that just needs the right ears versus the guy with the idea that he's just? It's just you know I've even heard this like great ideas at the wrong time or bad ideas, right? Like how do you know when it's not time to push through? I don't know if you have an example or if it's just maybe a set of standards that you go by on when do you give up or do you ever? You know I don't think you ever really give up. I think that you also have to make, well, first of all, I'm like the ultimate uh, financial person. It, it, when I say financial, meaning in the financial space, where people, you always hear the guys in the finance world, uh, you know, you, you, you eat what you kill. You know, mm -hmm. they use that phraseology, which I hate, but they said, <laughs> you eat what you kill. Well, when you have a television production company that you own, that it's yours, yeah. either you have things that pay your bills mm -hmm. or not. So mm -hmm. in a certain window of time, you push your shows, but then you make sure that you're hired to do other things that pay the bills. Right. But you also have to have a realm of integrity to yourself that when you take on those other jobs, it's within the bandwidth that people associate your reputation. And I use that as an example saying, if I was pitching the world's fastest athlete at the same time, I was, I had already created the Michael Jordan celebrity golf event. Mm. So that's my day job. <laughs> now, what do you do with that in your back pocket to say, I want to do this network television show. I know it has its, its bandwidth. Well, I have another event that's pretty high profile that allows me the latitudes to keep on being persistent hmm. and not give up. Gotcha. So you do have to make sure that you are not putting yourself or you become a nuisance to people too, where I, I don't think I ever would be persistent to a point where someone was taking my call out of exhaustion. They're taking my call because I would say, I really want to talk to you about this. Mm -hmm. I think we could do this together. I know you may say no, but I know we can do this together. This has all the earmarkings of what the superstars was and what the world's, the NFL's fastest man is to NBC, ABC or CBS. You can do this with me. Yeah. That to me is not being foolish. But it's saying we could do this. Given the right time, we could do this together. Mm -hmm. And then I did the day job to pay the bills. I love that. And yeah. then made my dream happen because 
I, I had the right ear listening to my pitch and going, yeah, it's about time. We haven't had the superstars in 10 years. This is about time for us to do this. And why not have Jim McKay introduce this? It would be great. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, yes. Well, you, you know, it's so that's what I love about podcasting, right? You start to tie things together. I learn from every guest. I, it's like a coaching session for me. It's, you know, it's amazing. But uh, Preston Smiles, who you've probably never heard of, he's been a guest. He was, he's a, he's one of the biggest coaches in the country right now, right? He has a huge coaching brand and, and practice. But I remember on the podcast talking to him about, you know, building it. And he said, look, I had this job. I forget what it was. And I think this is what you're saying essentially is like, I didn't want that desperate energy to be in my coaching business. Like I knew I was building something and I, w- I wanted to do it in a way that was aligned. I never wanted to feel like I was desperate or begging or whatever. So I, I secured myself with the job and right. I built this the way I wanted to. And I got my, my yeses and nos. It didn't really matter because it, it was just, it, it built. And eventually once it got to a point, I could walk away from the job. And it sounds like that's the same thing. You, you positioned yourself to never be desperate for the yes. So you right. could be persistent. You could be out there, but it wasn't that there's a difference. People can feel the difference between this is an opportunity. I'd love to do it with you. No, great. I'm going to move on. And come on, you know, I need this. You know, there's a difference in that energy that comes across. And I think what you're saying is you gave yourself a foundation to not be that way. Fair? Fair. I like that. That's uh, and, incredible. And I think that the, the rationale also is that when you are in a panic mode, a desperate mode, people become scared of you. Yeah. Now, there's nothing wrong with being hungry. In fact, I tell my children that my wife and I, we, we talk about that all the time to our kids. Being hungry is a good thing because then you're eager to do the job. You're a worker. You're, yeah. you're there to be a grinder and get it done. If you look like you're the person who doesn't like to work, that sits back on their laurels and just expects things like like you are entitled, Mm -hmm. you may get some breaks because of the people that your family has known. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you're going to be there. They're the person that's kicked down the hall. Once there's a chink in the armor, everybody's pushing that person down the hall because no one really not necessarily respects that person, but you're, you're very much resentful of how they got there. Right. But the person who grinds and works hard and is a little bit hungry to get to the next level and push themselves and show initiative, nothing is wrong with that. In fact, most people gravitate to those people as overachievers. Underachievers are the people that you go, yeah, no moss. Right. Because at some point you set your, you know, you, your boat to that one. It's not going to, it's going to stall out. Yeah. Right. Because no one really supports those people. I love that. And so my, you know, my parents taught me work ethic and I try to teach my kids that. And people who work with me, I'll pull them aside and try to go over work ethic you you never can get faulted for outworking the people you're either working with or against. Mm-hmm. Outwork them. I period. love it. No, 100%. And the other part, I think, for you that I hear, I wrote this down, 
you know, like I have a coach, his name is Jason Trees, right? And we talk a lot about getting in alignment with what, uh, with what you're, you're intended to do, right? Like you can sense when you're, you're, you're driving down the right track for you or you're not, right? It's a grind right. or it's in alignment. Doesn't mean there's not work. It means right. that, wow, this is purposeful for me, right? Um, and then the action, like you talked about, uh, I had this opportunity in West Palm and I went then that day, right? It wasn't like, oh, well, let me think about it. Wait till Monday. Like you, you were very clear on where you wanted to go. You were aligned with what you're, you're decisive. decisive and you did it right. So I think to your point, that work ethic, when you combine it and you have with a, a deep sense of purpose and alignment with where you want to go is, it seems like to me anyway, a big reason for the exponential results that you've gotten, the ability to have a show on ABC's Wide World Sports at 22, the friendships that you formulated, the podcast, which has grown exponentially in a very short time. I tried picking your brain on that. Like, what, what'd you do? How'd you do this stuff? Um, it's I, I, That's inspiring to me, how how you're, you're working hard, but doing so in alignment with your, your purpose. So anyway, I wanted to honor you on that. Uh, did you have something? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say the... I think the quintessential thing also is I always believe you're never ever in a place where you don't want to learn. Yeah. I love being around people. It doesn't take much for me to be around people who are smarter than me, but I would tell you that I love being around people who are a lot smarter than me because what I'm gaining from is is their knowledge and the ability for me to see how they process this, how they react to these situations. And I admire that. I, you know, I've in, again, in sports broadcasting, Don Olmeyer was a partner of mine, business partner, as well as somebody that I admired. Now he was a, he, you know, his son works with me on, if I'm doing a television show, his son is the first person I'm going to call to be my producer of Sam doing a golf show or something like that, because he's a really good talented producer. But that said, his dad, Don Omar, decisive confidence in his decision-making and the ability to actually take control of the, it, it was like the way I express it comes back to baseball. I'm the guy I want the ball in my hands. Mm. If you were coming out, to pull me out of the game, you didn't want to look at my face because I'm looking at you like, get the hell out of here. This is my game. Right. I never want to leave the game, yeah. period. And that's how I am with my shows. And that's how I would like learn. So I had a chance to ask lots of questions of Al Michaels, of Howard Cosell, of people that, Bob Costas, of people who you look up to and I, I would take little bits of each person because I know how talented they, they're much more talented than I am. But I would try to take little bits and pieces of each one of what they would say and digest it and try to form a better path for myself mm. to make when I'm making these decisions, this decisiveness, to have a realm of confidence to know, well, all these other people that are successful, they did these things too. Don't lose sight of where you're going and what you how you got there, but also be humble enough to listen to people who are a lot smarter than you. And a lot of people today, especially millennials, because of YouTube and because of social media, you believe that you know everything about everything. And that's not necessarily the case. Because once, other than making millions of dollars because you could take selfies, if you want to enter the workplace, 
you better deliver because yeah. there's somebody else chomping at the bit that's hungry, hungrier than you to get that job. But you've got to be smart enough to listen to the people who are smarter. So you earlier on, you mentioned Kurt Russell. Yeah. Kurt will, will not come on my podcast until he has a film to be released. Why is that? That's old school Hollywood. I embrace that. Now, other people would say, well, you got to tell him, you know, he's your friend and your podcast needs this. And from day one, it was, this is how Kurt operates. If I can feed into that system. So when I talk to Kurt and he's telling me about movies, I love the fact that he never takes credit of being a director or writer. Never. But he wrote me, directed Tombstone. He just mm. doesn't talk about it. He doesn't want it to be known. But he took the script and redid it. Right now, he's making a movie up in Vancouver uh, uh, with his son, Wyatt, a, a Godzilla movie. And again, writing scripts, directing. Instincts are amazing. And you go to a guy like that and you're asking questions and you listen. Don't talk. Listen. And, and I, he would laugh when I would tell these stories. but. I got lucky. I had a client where I produced a show with him, like a comedy festival and golf event, Milton Berle, the old Vaudevillian Milton Berle. Sure. Crazy, funny stories. However, the guy had the patent on the teleprompter, the patent on the applause sign, Hmm. wrote a thousand songs, Broadway shows. And all I ever talked to him about was history. Here's a guy that started his career with Charlie Chaplin, knew every president from Woodrow Wilson through, I think, Clinton is when he passed. Every president. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy that actually introduced JFK to Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> no kidding. Yes. <laughs> so, but, but beyond that, Milton Berle would invite me to sit in on things where how it reflects in today's era of politics is an interesting one. But during McCarthy era, they never went after Milton Berle. Hmm. Now, he had more friends who would be deemed communist than anybody because he was such a diverse person in the entertainment space. Yeah. Where it's live, you know, live television, uh, vaudeville, films, uh, you know, he was he was quite diverse. Uh, he asked me to come up to the Friars Club in L.A., where he kind of uses his office. He kind of gave them the land for it and they built the Friars Club West, which was in Los Angeles. And I went up there, he said, do you know who David Shine is? And I said, David Shine, Roy Cohen's lover. He's like, very good. Hmm. You know, he's on the phone. I'm like, right, I'm a history buff. He goes, when you come up, don't open your mouth, just listen. That's how he would say it, just listen. I know you're going to do that, just listen. I'm like, okay, sat with David Shine and he's talking about, he was writing a book Mm. on his life and he was talking to Milton because in that time period, Milton was the number one TV star. It was Mm. Lucille Ball and Milton Berle, the two big stars. And Lucy had passed, so it was Milton Berle. So he's talking to him and I'm just sitting there and he said, who is that? And he goes, oh, he works with me on different things, but you know, I know he would appreciate you, David, because he's a big history buff. Mm. And the only thing I asked him is, why didn't you go after Milton? 
And, you know, everyone at the table kind of turned to me and they're nodding like, good question. Mm. He said, Milton was so big and so Americana that McCarthy was afraid to go after him. I go, he went after the military, but he didn't go after Milton Berle. Because, <laughs> well, it didn't work out for him going after the military, did it? Right, right. It was his response. And That's a great answer. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But when, you, when you're sitting with people and you hear those kind of stories, so the same context, Burl invites me to come up. He goes, do you know where Chasen's is? And I go, yeah, I know the restaurant. I've been there a lot. He goes, come up Chasen's tomorrow night. Do you have a... Do you have clearance for Secret Service? And I'm like, no. Because, you know, what's your social security number? I give it to him and I'll call you back. And he says, he'll call me back. And uh, sure enough, he, uh, how did he, he goes, okay, you could come up tomorrow night. <laughs> so I show up and it was dinner with Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, Fred McMurray. The, the, the legendary actor at a show called My Three Sons and a like famous, iconic Hollywood fixture. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Milton Berle and me. What doesn't fit? Me. <laughs> Nancy Reagan. No. Right. So I bring nothing <laughs> to the table. Yeah. But you're listening to this dialogue going back and forth. And Burl was giving. Reagan a hard time because at that time when they were talking about something in the late forties, early fifties, Reagan was a Democrat. Mm, that's true. And was going really hard after him. Wow. What a big hypocrite you are. And blah, 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 blah. You know, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, it was amazing dialogue, but again, it was a learning experience to know that it's all about relationships. What year was this? Just ballpark. 90. Wow. Wow. Okay. So this is two years after Reagan's out of office. Right. And wow. he was still quite um, sharp. Sure. Yeah. He was sharp because they were recalling things from this movie star and that movie star. And I won't get into the gory details, but I mean, it was festive and some of the stuff, you know, quite provocative, you know, yeah. hearing these stories, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but again, you know, the Burl stuff led to, you know, uh, you know, I went to the American music awards because his nephew Marshall had founded like white snake and Van Halen. <laughs> no kidding. And so Milton's like, do you want to go to the American, uh, American music awards with me? I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm going with this 80 some odd year old guy, but who cares? You're at you the are, right place at the right time. You're like the Forrest Gump of with a slightly higher IQ. <laughs> slightly. <laughs> but literally, you just you're sitting with the former president of the United States, two years removed, you know, Milton Burl. I mean, right. I, I'm a 40 year old guy. I absolutely know who Milton and he's before my time, you know, like he's iconic. He's massive. He's Al Michaels, all these people. I mean, you know, yeah. like I bump into Al Michaels. He's geez, man. You're like, well, you that's, know? but that's why my podcast and when I do my shows, when people say, well, how did you get someone sort of do this? It's yeah, yeah. like, well, because I asked them. Yeah. And uh, I know who to ask for what. It's like casting. Mm. And so that goes back, like with Kurt. When I talk to Kurt, it's about casting. You know, how did you cast this person? Why was this person cast? And 
that's kind of a cool topic. And for me, when I cast my golf shows, because I've created a lot of golf shows. Yeah. You know, when I do a charity golf event for Walgreens, I do corporate Walgreens has one event a year. And it's an amazing event. And they're like the nicest people. And all of their corporate suppliers participate. And I get 36 celebrities to come. Wow. And people are like, well, why don't you ask so-and-so and so-and-so? I'm like, not the right fit. Right. It's not to say that a big name wouldn't fit. It's that they may not be the right one who can be on a golf cart for five hours mm. with a CEO of this company and chief marketing officer of that company and just mix it up and tell fun stories that probably a lot of times the A-list talent in some contexts, it's very uncomfortable yeah. around that. And so the client needs celebrities that are reliable, won't embarrass them. Yeah. And it's about branding. And I, I would say of all the things that I do, I'm a brand specialist. Mm. I like that. So my yeah. podcast, The Path Here, my brand is very specific. You know, so it's, could I interview some of these, you know, the housewives? It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard for me. Yeah. Would I do? Probably, maybe, I don't know. At the end of the day, what am I going to talk about? Yeah. Well, that's, it's funny you say that, man. I want to talk about the path here in a second, but I, you know, when I started getting into this and I started getting bigger names, it's fun. It's cool. Right. And then you get into the idea of like, and I've said this, like, I'd love to get Gary V. Right. But then, I mean, I still wouldn't, I would take Gary V. But the more I think about it, like everything is out there about Gary V. Like, I don't know what more I'm going to really do with him, you know, on this show or Will Smith. Like, Will Smith would be amazing. This is slap before what well, it doesn't really matter, but huge star. But then I've seen, I saw, I don't know, he did the uh, David Letterman interview. It, would, it was, it was done before the slap, but released after. And right. I watched it and it was just so. I don't know, surfacey, you know, I'm sure publicists, you know, kind of guide what he can and can't say. Like, I right. wouldn't want that. I want to be excited about the interview. So I love interviewing. I just had a guy that was out of prison after 26 years as a drug kingpin. And he, you know, he's turned his life around. Like, those are interesting, fun stories. Nobody's heard of the guy, but it's right. a fun story, right? So there's a balance there. Like, you know, Derek Jeter, yeah, be very interested. And he's a huge name, of course, right? But he's got an incredible story. So it's funny you say that the casting, I never thought of it that way branding like what your brand is with your show you know right. one of the my favorite guests on your show was uh todd english that was a fascinating interview and it was there was some there was some like uh uh like why do i know this name what is this so i used to live in the seaport of boston if you look directly across you see the north end and right next to the north end is charlestown and charlestown is a restaurant called olives Right. Todd English, that was his first restaurant. And I remember eating there and it was amazing. And then I remember eating at an Olives in Vegas. I think, I think at the Bellagio. I could be it wrong. It was at Bellagio. It's yep. now at what is called Virgin. And I don't know if it's going to be called Virgin for too much longer. And if it's Olives will be there for much longer, you know, because it's not that Olive, Olives is doing great. Yep. The hotel is not doing great. Got it. Is this Richard Branson, Virgin? I don't know if he's involved with it. Yeah, the answer is yes with the name Virgin. The question yeah. is, I don't think he has anything to do with the ownership of the hotel other than the licensing of the name. Got it, got it. Yeah. So, that makes sense. you know, that, so I always look at it going when I showed up there, 
you know, VH1 Fairway to Heaven yeah. is a show that I did for 14 years. Okay. Yeah. It's a it's it's one where I've been asked to write a book numerous times, just like Milton Berle, tell all. Yeah. Milton Berle was known in Hollywood for being the most well endowed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And people would ask me to write books about, it, and I'm like, nah. <laughs> Fairway to heaven, write books about what took place. Because all the stories, when they start coming out of me, are just like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. And it's like, if you write that tell-all book, first of all, that tell-all person in that context is the person I usually dislike. Yeah. And then all these relationships go away Mm. because who's going to trust that person who's probably thinking, well, he's making mental notes because he's going to do, put that in his next book. Yeah. You you have to be very, again, your brand has to be protected. How do you, how do you insulate yourself and continue down this path? Todd English has this kind of bad boy reputation. Yeah. Okay. And maybe deserved in some context at one time period of his life. You're not going to find a more talented chef anywhere on the planet mm-hmm. or any other planet for that matter. Um, does Todd like to party? Yes. Is Todd knowledgeable in multi-languages? You betcha. Mm-hmm. And he's a an unbelievable... And the thing I always talk about with Todd... He's the most gracious and kind person. He will give you the shirt off his back, literally. If if you're on Todd's, you know, kind of speed dial or or bandwidth, he'll do anything for you. He's just the nicest guy. Mm-hmm. He's just loves to have fun. He's just a, a big kid that loves to have fun. That's cool. Yeah. But as a chef and as this, you know, he's not from Boston. He's he's from the South. Yeah. But when he gravitated and he took on the persona that was Boston, which is, you know, a great Bostonian is, is the, is that lunch pail, you know, you're going to go out there. It's, it's more of a blue collar, even though Boston has its snooty section. No, no, but you're right. It's yeah. It's a grinder. It's a guy who's going to go out there and grind it out, work hard. That's the Boston way. Mm -hmm. And Todd exemplifies that he, you know, with all of his nuances and silliness, you're not going to find him not in his restaurant, not with the chefs, not with the prepping of the food. He's there. Mm-hmm. And he he's a person that I would say, if, if you know, if there was a master class in cooking, there are great chefs that are more celebrated, maybe get taught English to teach something. Because the young chef, I want to have, it's like being at a golf course, a great superintendent, that golf course is like his child. Mm. They're there from early in the morning until late at night, all year long. That's their baby. They grind. Mm -hmm. Todd English is a grinder. So he exemplifies exactly what all this meant to that part of Boston. I love it. I love the whole thing. I, again, it was interesting going through episodes. I'm like, I, I know that name. Let me tap on it and play it. Like, 
that's how I know who this guy. I don't know the guy, but I, you know, I know who he is obviously because of his his brand and the Olives restaurant chain. And I met all these other chefs that look up to you know Chef Bo McMillan, who's a very dear friend. Another, you know, I wouldn't say Bostonian. He's from Massachusetts originally, from Canada, but Massachusetts born and raised. As is Kurt Russell. Mm -hmm. You know, Kurt's a Massachusetts guy uh, by way of Maine, right? I mean, lived in Maine and then then to California, but. Bo, I met Bo through Todd. Todd said, oh, you got to meet Bo. He's this unbelievable guy. I gave this young upstart guy who's a griller. He's the he's the green egg guy named David Rose. I haven't had him on my podcast. Podcast yet, but he should because he's a great guy, great story. And David Rose was another disciple of Todd's. And all of a sudden on 4th of July, this past 4th of July on NBC for their coverage of the fireworks, is that you know the the team they have with David Rose? He's mm. their master griller, telling cooking stories. Yeah, and he he'll write me and say, "I owe it all to you. You gave me my break in television." <laughs> and I turn it right around and say, "Well, you should thank Todd because Todd told me I should call you because you're just this great guy." Yeah. yeah, and that's who Todd is. Todd is very he pays it forward. And that's part of what I would think in whatever uh, life lesson or whatever um, coaching that you have that you're going yeah. through, that's really what it should be about. How do you pay it forward? How do you make whatever success you have allow somebody else to bask in that and create their own strength? And you know what? They'll thank you because you've opened that door. You've paved the way for them. And it feels pretty good when you do that. Hundred percent. I love that. Look, there's we we have to wrap, unfortunately. But we didn't. Yeah. I mean, you you touched on, and I might have to have you back. One, what I learned about the Todd English interview is you geek out as a culinary guy as well. Like that's part yes. of your your persona. There's a whole other it's my ball passion. Game. I love right. You you I and I talking for my wife, my kids, all the yeah. Yeah. And you and I talked about uh, before this some really interesting stuff around the PGA and the tour and Saudi back tour. It's just. There's so many more things we could talk about. And you mentioned about relational versus transactional. I love what you said about the book. If I write a tell-all, then you go transactional. You're not relational anymore. And you are a relational being, right? And I have this fun story for you. Speaking of Kurt Russell, I was named after Kurt Russell. And my name's Jamie. I'll explain. My mother is a huge, to this day, huge Kurt Russell fan. She watched, she's probably, they, my mother and father probably watched the Christmas Chronicles. They're probably watching it now. They love Kurt Russell. Somewhere in the late 70s when I was born, Kurt Russell played the part, uh, played a part, and his his character's name was Jamie. So when I was named, I was named Jamie after that character. I don't even know what it was. He was a young kid at that point, probably. He's probably, you know, teenager or 20 years old as an actor. But um, very emphatic about when people say, oh, is his name James, meaning mine? Oh, did you name him James? And she's like, no, it's Jamie, because she loves Kurt Russell and loved that Kurt Russell character. I have to go back and look and see. I'll ask him. I never yeah. even looked. You think he would remember from the late 70s? Of course. I guess it's like anything, right? Like that's his craft. That's his thing. I'll, I'll tell you a real quick Kurt story. Yeah, 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 please. So Kurt and Wyatt and uh, one of Kurt's best friends is a producer named Larry Franco. Great guy. And he used to be his brother-in-law as well. Great guy. And they came up with a concept that I was brought in to embellish on called the road to the super ad. It's a great idea that we have. It's, it's a TV show. And we were going in to pitch Walgreens. 
Now mm-hmm. I had already had a relationship with Walgreens. We're trying to do this thing with Walgreens. And Kurt was, we spent the night in Chicago where Walgreens is based and we're going to go pitch them the next day. And we're walking in the room and he said, yeah, I'm kind of, kind of nervous. And I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? You're like, <laughs> are you kidding me, pal? They're, yeah. they're just happy you're here. <laughs> but so there was a movie that he was in with Robin Williams called Best of Times. Oh. Okay. It was a football movie. Best of Times. Best okay. of Times. It's a very silly, typical Kurt movie. That's how I describe it. It's a typical Kurt movie, but okay. it's a great movie. And I'm not giving anything away, but during the scene where Kirk comes out, he's wearing the shoes that he wore when he played. It, it's they're reliving this high school football game that they lost and Robin Williams dropped the ball and they have to play the game again. And they do. Oh, and I it's a great movie to watch. I it's have a, seen a fun, this. I could, yeah. Great movie. Yeah. And we're walking in this room and I look at Kurt and I go, it's like the announcer did in, in that movie. I go, he's wearing his white shoes. Going right to a Kurt roll. And he looked at me and he slaps me in the chest and he starts laughing. And we go up there and he nails it in the presentation. He does his part and I do my part. It was great. And he came out and he thanked me for, because I was making fun of something out of a role that he had. And then he got into great details to me about the movie. But it was because of a Kurt Russell role. Here I throw right back in his face. Yeah. And he loved it. Would he have killed it anyway? Of course he would have, because he's a pro. He knows what he's doing. He is a great orator. I unbelievable. You want a guy that can host something that I've never seen him host like the Academy Awards. I don't know if they've asked him. Unbelievable. Like his voiceover work. Amazing. That's like, I'm telling you, like, it'd be like, wow, I didn't see that coming. He's done a lot of it. Yeah. But he's so much better than people even give him credit for. He's in his he's in his space, right? He's in his gift. And to your point, when you're in your gift, you give it to others. And that's the best. He's an order. He can describe yeah. things with a passion. It's amazing. He's Plus a great winemaker. So many oh, yes. so many. Oh, I yeah. think I I think I found it, by the way. I Googled. So I saw the movie. Uh I I'm sorry. I saw the images of the movie. I remember the white jersey with the green letters, Robin Williams and Kurt Russell. So I've seen that movie. I don't remember. It's worth watching it again. Jack Palance's daughter plays Robin Williams. What about Jack Palance? Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. going back. Plays Jack Palance's daughter plays Robin Williams' wife or something like that. Crazy. I think that's who it was. And I'm like thinking, wow, how did I pull that one out? And I think I found the Jamie. It might be Jamie McFeeters from Guns of Diablo, 1964. It's the wow. only thing I could think of is a TV series, 1963-64, and Kurt Russell played, yeah, he's a young he was a, Hey, he was on Gilligan's Island. Was he? Oh, yeah. One episode? Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, he wasn't a regular that I, I oh, missed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, he's <laughs> told me so many great stories over the years, but, I'm, that, but getting to your point, it's relationships to me, when you talk about golf, when you talk about a round of golf is predicated on having relationship. 
you're there, your game is really against the golf course. Mm-hmm. You're, you're hopefully the people that you're playing with give you joy in life. So that's a wonderful walk. It's a four hour walk, or if you're in mm-hmm. golf carts, it's a great experience. But where I've always stumbled work wise is when people, everything is transactional because a, a relationship person and a transaction person usually butt heads yeah. at some point. Yeah. But when people bring me on, it's because they know I'm bringing a, a wide array of relationships to the table that could turn into some form of transaction only if they want it to be. Mm. I never want it to be forced. So when they when it's a forced environment, transaction people and relationship people. 100%. So. All right. Thank you for wow, man. Yeah, of course. Waste well, your day and you haven't wasted anything. Are you kidding me? I've got a whole remarkable page of notes here. Like the I got this new remarkable tablet thing. So I got a, a bunch of stuff that I wrote down. But tell us more about the path here, real quick. Where can people find it? Where do you want to direct them? Is it YouTube, audio? Where do you want people so to go? For the path here, the best way to see it is go to my Instagram page at Scott Savlove. And there's a link and it'll have all of the ways you can see the YouTube. You could do the audio. So that way, if you're driving, it's a, it's a great drive. Uh, it's a great way. There's certain times, probably it's the host that if you need a nap, great time to fall asleep <laughs> so is, is to listen to that way. But it, but go there. Um, but we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, blah, sure. blah, blah. The Path Here podcast on YouTube, we're, we're kind of, again, from the business model, I'm looking at it now to really get sponsors on board from my YouTube because we've had YouTube success. Yes, you have. First video right away went to 50,000 views. First video. But again, I picked the guy that I know. He, he Still, you know, look, we collaborated on, on one post. Yeah. One post collaboration has nothing to do with me. <laughs> He tells me not to read any because some of these women can say things that you don't want to read. Jamie Dornan, the great Irish actor, producer, musician, golfer, and great family person. Jamie Dornan, that was who I targeted, staying on my path, staying within focus. Mm. He would be the best visual drop of the path here on YouTube. And I was kind of right because instantly went to 50,000. And it was like his fan base, he, you know, and socially may only have a couple of million in that sphere of things. They're so loyal to him mm. that for him to collaborate on a social post accelerated my growth on social. Sure. And that, that made the video, the YouTube fly. And, yeah. and the story, yeah, I think it's a pretty good. If you watch that one, it's a pretty good episode. It gives you some insight into him. Um, the, coming up, an episode that'll be on YouTube, the uh, the actor Frankie Muniz. Oh, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aging Cody Banks and Malcolm in the Middle. Come on. Yeah. And it was, as you'll see on that podcast, when it comes out, three times he said to me in the interview, you know, I've never told anybody this. This is kind of cool. Yeah. And for me, it was rewarding. Because he's been interviewed a lot. Sure, sure. Yeah. So for him to kind of feel comfortable enough with me, for him to divulge, made me feel good about me for a yeah. minute. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You know, you, I you watch it. It'll be a good. It's a good episode. It'll be a great TV. Uh, this week's show is John Lovitz. Oh, come on! One of the funny, real funny, silly people. Again, it gave me a lot of insight into how he made his humor work for him, uh, his brand, how he created the brand for Saturday Night Live, how he got his break there. Pretty good stuff. And so I feel very, very fortunate to have people that I think most people would know who they are and uh, where the chicks fall where they may. John Lovitz uh, right away comes to mind. He's losing his mind and I'm reaping all the profits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wedding singer. Wedding singer. Yeah, exactly. Well, he, he said to me uh, on there, he goes, are you jealous? <laughs> and I'm like laughing and I'm like, the other one, you know, I'm hysterical. And it's just the two of us. But yeah. it was like, he does those things in characters so good. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but that's this week's episode. And I have Steve Cropper. Uh, again, people look him up. One of the greatest minds in music wrote Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Oh, geez. okay. Soul Man for Sam and Dave. He wrote and kind of the backbone of the Blues Brothers. And this guy has written, you know, Green Onions and all these songs. And here's this legendary guitarist. And he's on there. And I have some special guests coming on. So of my next three shows, those are my next three shows. So they're not, there's no dead weight there. None. Other than the host, we, we got to elevate that game. But <laughs> but the talent that I'll bring on are pretty good. And this is cool. I yeah. got a Wiki, I got a Wikipedia research now on Steve Cropper. Interesting. Good there stuff. You go. man. I yeah. love it. Listen, I, I truly appreciate you coming on. I appreciate Bob Thank for you. connecting us. And uh, I hope to stay in touch. I mean, I will if you're Please. open for it. So yeah, I might have to time. have you back if you're open to it, because there's a lot more topics to go through. So anytime, As I, long, however, I can help you let me know. Uh, our mutual friend, Bob Castellini Jr. cannot find a nicer, more gracious person no. on the planet. Although he blew me off this morning. Bob, if you're listening. He blew me off this morning. We had a call scheduled and he for, and he slept through it. He slept. I'm I don't I'm taking that as a personal affront. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you should. You should. No, no, I gotta call you... him back. He called me middle of the day. I was on another call. He's like, I'm so sorry. We had a I think Cannot... he was at something going on. He woke up later, like that's nah, fine, Bob. But great he guy. He is one of those people that when you meet him, he becomes a lifelong friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and people it's like almost a sad thing when people don't know him. Yeah, that's true. That's because true. He's that kind of gracious, kind guy. He's so. been, well, but connection to you is one of those things. Like he, he's taken an interest in what I'm trying to do with this, which I, I again, didn't ask him. I just, I value his friendship. I love talking to him. And uh, he's just like, let me connect you to somebody, you, and then a right. couple of other folks. And it was like, wow. I, you know, <laughs> like it's not connection to somebody like you just, you know, dumped some of the biggest names in the world that are in your Rolodex. It's an old man term right there, but in your cell phone, um, right. you know, the, the, the people that he is introducing me to, I'm, I'm just amazed by. And I, again, never asked for it, never would, but he's just so gracious and giving. And I That's don't know who he is. I don't know what I did to deserve it, but he's an amazing guy to have in my life. So, yeah. Well, he he's one to embrace. Yeah. hundred percent. As are you. So I appreciate you being thank on you. again. Thank you so Jamie, much. We'll thank talk. you. It was fun. Always. Yeah, always a blast. All right. Thank you again. Be well. 
that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. 